welcome to the Chelsea Olson podcast. I am delighted to welcome you to the community for all things leadership, wellness, and creativity. I believe in a world driven by abundance where businesses, humanity, and our planet thrive. It is time to redefine success and start building the world we dream to live in. It starts with you, and it starts here. Hello and welcome. In today's episode, I am just so delighted to introduce Amanda Panacea. She is a licensed mental health counselor and life coach with a second master's in human nutrition and functional medicine. Amanda has a unique approach to coaching. Her integrative approach focuses on the nervous system, embodiment and somatic practices, and uncovering subconscious and generational patterns so that her clients can create and manifest the life they want and truly deserve. She's also trained in and uses bioenergetic testing and functional labs to guide true mind, body, and soul transformations. So thanks for being here today, Amanda. I am so excited for our conversation. Thank you, Chelsea. I am so thrilled to be here as well. Amanda and I have co-created already before, and it was a total blast. So I'm super excited to see how this unfolds today. (laughs) We make a good team. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. We have a lot in common, so it's fun. So obviously just your bio alone shows that you really are a true expert in the health and wellness industry. So will you just start with telling us about your personal journey onto that path? Yeah, sure. So I was born and raised in West Virginia. It's, it's a great place to grow up. It's very isolated though. So growing up, I kind of always felt different. I kind of always like would watch TV shows and movies and think like, wow, look at everything else going on in the world. None of that happens here. Like no concerts came here. Like you would see other cities and just be in awe of all the things that the world had. And so from a very, very young age, I I wanted out. I wanted to leave. I hated living there. I hated growing up there. Um, looking back, I mean, I had a a really fantastic childhood. I played outside. I did competitive sports. Uh, I went to a really good school. Um, but also something that really made an imprint on me was the amount of alcohol use that surrounded me everywhere. There's a lot of generational alcoholism in my family. And I grew up in a really, really large family with lots of aunts and uncles and cousins. My grandparents were all alive for a very long time. So we would have really fun get togethers with like, like 50 people at a time sometimes. Um, and like I said, a lot of alcohol use. So growing up, I just assumed everybody used those amounts of alcohol. (laughs) Um, but as I got a little bit older, I started to realize like some of my friends' parents didn't use alcohol like that. And when I found out that people in the world didn't drink that heavily, I was like in shock almost like, is, is, is this bad? Um, and of course, growing up with a lot of alcohol, there are definitely some very scary situations. I feel like I learned at a very young age to not really, uh, tell my parents like what was wrong with me. Like if something bad happened, I didn't want to tell them. I didn't want to either get yelled at or, um, you know, when a parent's using drugs or alcohol, you don't really know which one of them you're going to get. So that's when a lot of like keeping things inside really started. And then I also started a lot of like people pleasing behaviors, perfectionism behaviors for one, because I um, didn't want to upset anyone. I wanted to be 
um, really good. I was a very good child. <laughs> I didn't get in trouble at all. And thinking back, there are times where I don't even remember talking very much. I, I was very shy as well. And then uh, growing up, I knew that continuing to do like very well in school, get good grades, be good at things was my ticket out of there. So it just kind of escalated from there. And then in very true fashion, in my teenage years, I discovered alcohol, I discovered drugs. And I was like, oh, I get it now. Like, this is why everybody's using these things. And of course, they were already being associated with like parties and everybody laughing. And I learned if I wanted like to spend the night with my best friend, wait till it's late at night and parents are happy. So you could ask them because they'll definitely say yes if they're drinking. Um, and then at teenage years through college, um, a lot of alcohol use, which is really not uncommon for most people, I think. Um, but after that, through, you know, all the way through my 20s, even my early 30s, there was a lot of like partying for every reason. Because it's a Tuesday, every single weekend, you're all your friends become DJs. And so there's a lot of like party drugs, like ecstasy, MDMA, cocaine, LSD, psilocybin, um, and some not so nice drugs kind of sneak their way in sometimes. Um, sometimes people would do meth or smoke crack. Um, there was like whippet use and just all, you name it, there was probably parties where people were doing it all around me. And even though I was still putting up that front and doing still doing really well on paper. I mean, I, after my undergraduate degree, I went to school for a master's in counseling. And like I said, I was still using drugs during a master's degree in counseling. Like it was just a very big disconnect of what I really wanted to learn and who I wanted to be and then how I was acting. And, you know, there were times where things were a blast. Like I had so much fun. We went on yacht parties um, we went on tons of fun vacations, but then there was also a lot of those really horrible dark times where somebody got arrested, somebody had a seizure, um, you and the partner you're with are getting into huge fights, uh, you know, somebody gets hurt, just all sorts of stuff is also happening during those time periods as well. And then when I started to hit my like early, early thirties, I started to realize, um, this is something I have to stop. Like, this is no longer making me happy whatsoever. Um, my body had started to uh, give me signs that it was time to stop. My brain was definitely giving me signs that it was time to stop. Um, but I went through a pretty traumatic breakup around that time and decided I was going to reinvent myself and move to another city. And at that time, it was just a lot at once. And I was having a hard, really hard time letting go and I found a new relationship in that relationship. That other person was like, yeah, you definitely need to stop drinking alcohol. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I know, but I'm just not ready. And I just, there was all sorts of disconnects. I feel like in, without my life with, with the alcohol use and some of the drugs, because also this is when I went back to school to study functional medicine and nutrition and like physical health. And it was like, how am I going to sit here and act like I'm eating a good diet, doing yoga, but I'm still binge drinking and still doing drugs sometimes. It just didn't make sense. And it took me a long time to figure out that I really, really, really wanted to stop. And then in 
perfect universe, God, whatever you want to call it. I asked for a sign. I asked for a reason. And then that's when I got hepatitis A. I was hospitalized and hepatitis A attacks your liver. My liver enzymes went up to almost 5,000. I was jaundiced and I couldn't eat for days. I was vomiting. It was horrible. Um, Your liver enzymes, by the way, aren't supposed to be usually above like 30. So it was like astronomically high. They were monitoring me for liver failure. And of course, they're like, you cannot touch alcohol for at least six months, probably a year. (laughs) And then around three months after that, I was still recovering. They told me I had to be on bed rest for months, at least three months. Like I could not exercise whatsoever. And I really felt completely wiped out. I was sleeping 12 hours a night. Um, The relationship I was in had ended and I was basically homeless living with my friends on their couch. I had hepatitis and I was like, wow, I think this is a rock bottom. Like, I think this is a good sign. Um, but then of course that wasn't even the rock bottom. There was, uh, once I met the person I'm dating now, I was still recovering from hepatitis A and he was living in a beautiful apartment on the water here in Miami. And there was mold in the AC vents. And because I didn't want him to think I was a total hypochondriac. I went in and out of that apartment for about a year and a half, as little as I possibly could, but I was still going in and out and I developed horrible mold illness, candida, hormonal imbalances, panic attacks. I couldn't sleep. But the worst part about that was I did not stop itching since the day I walked into that apartment and it just escalated. And I developed rashes all over my entire body. They were in my eyes. Um, And just during this time period, of course, I was finishing my functional medicine degree and at the worst, worst health of my life, finishing an education that should have taught me how to better take care of myself. And here I was like even worse. So then that's when I found bioenergetic testing, which really changed my life because it's uh, measuring energy and frequency patterns instead of like blood work. And it really gave me a lot of answers and helped me start to recover from the mold illness. However, during this whole process, um, I was still very resistant to for one, quitting alcohol forever. I still had like, oh, well, I'll just, I'll just drink a little bit here and there. Um, and two, I was very resistant to doing some of that like really deep inner work and somatic work and brain retraining that happens not just because of mold, but with any kind of like traumatic history, it's going to impact the limbic part of your brain and your nervous system because that's just a part of like what that toxin does. And also I think that I was set up for already having a lot of nervous system dysregulation already. And I didn't wanna do it. I was still saying, no, I'm not gonna do it. So fast forward one year dealing with the mold illness and the rashes, everything's getting worse. I um, decided to do an immunotherapy and I took a medication called prednisone which is a steroid, which usually a very short term round of this medication is is not gonna do much. Like it'll give you some relief of the inflammation, but if you don't address the root cause, it's going to come right back. And only after 12 days of taking that medication, I went into what's called topical steroid withdrawal, which is literally where all of your skin on your entire body melts and peels and flakes off and plasma is oozing out of your skin. 
And people go through this for years sometimes. So when that happened, I was to the point where I was completely immobile. I couldn't move. I couldn't touch anything. I could barely wear clothes. I couldn't sleep. Uh, I was shaking nonstop. Your, your temperature regulation goes out the window. You're in like a severe adrenal crisis because your adrenals think I don't have any cortisol anymore. Where did that synthetic cortisol go? And um, yeah, so I really was completely disabled. The only thing I could do was was work basically, which is also one of my avoidant behaviors. So during this time, I this is when I was like, okay, I thought I had hit some rock bottoms, but this is the absolute worst hell. And this is when I really decided to um, stop all the resistance that I had towards things like somatic work, brain retraining. I got a therapist to do like inner work and ego work and that is when I actually started to get better was when I focused on the reasons why I had gotten to that point in the first place. And of course there was definitely some physical reasons, but almost all of them to me, in my opinion, stem back to that nervous system dysregulation and, um, uh, emotional issues, trauma issues that I had prior to this, these last couple of years. So that was kind of long, but that is my whole story pretty much. <laughs> That's a wild story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I recently did a post on the, the quote unquote chronic illness journey and thinking, you know, when the physical stuff, stuff starts happening, you start to really freak out and you start to become obsessed with researching and education and learning about toxins and how the body works. And then almost everyone that has been through some sort of like crisis, physical health like that, like, um, situation that they almost always agree that it go, it's going to go back to, you still have to go back to your childhood, your nervous system, your attachment to parents and people, um, how you store emotions in your body. It, it almost always still will come back to that. Huh? Yeah. It makes sense. I mean, I know through my personal experience, that's where it started was with physical pain. And that was just the door mm -hmm. that, <laughs> kept opening more doors and more doors and more doors. So where are you now in that journey? Like how long ago was that? Um, so I started the topical steroid withdrawal January 1st, 2021. So it's been a year and four months since all of that started. Yeah. Very fresh and recent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I thought that, you know, I became a therapist. I did, I, I've done a little bit of inner work before I I thought that I didn't need to do it. I had so much resistance. Like, no, I'm good. I, I already know, logically, I understand how this is working, but I was still very resistant to actually doing it. It's funny how the brain will do that. It's like, oh no, the thing I need the most is definitely the last thing that I need. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whether that's sleep or therapy, um, we usually say, I don't have time for that. I don't need that. And it's... It's funny how the brain does that. It's quite tricky. Yeah. And I bought probably a gosh, I don't know, 10 to $50,000 worth of supplements and devices, still ignoring just doing the things I needed to actually do. And so that part of your journey in which you actually started to dive in and say, okay, yes, I'm, I'm doing this now. Was that in the last year and four months? Yeah. So it really started when I couldn't move. So that was uh, a little over a year ago like January, February after, because that I knew that that was probably the most traumatic thing that had ever happened to me. 
Like I knew that I needed trauma work at that point. And so that's when I was like, okay, because I usually tend to be the type of person that tells myself, no, I can handle it. I can suck this up. Uh, You know, I've, I've never failed at any goal that I've ever had. So you'll get through this. But once you can't move, you can't look in the mirror, you can't bathe, you can't open your mouth. I was like, this is true trauma. (laughs) This is like severe medical trauma too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think those experiences, as you mentioned, like anyone who's experienced chronic health or chronic illness can relate in some way. So everyone's story is so different. Um, But as someone who also experienced some chronic illness, I know that that process of watching yourself lose control of your body is a real initiation <laughs> for me. It was at least it was, wow. Uh, because same attitude I, I get, I achieve every goal. I set. I can do this. I can handle it. And then all of a sudden you can't control it. There is no achieving. There is no handling. You have to literally learn to be and exist in extreme pain. Yep. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us more about what that was like for you? Yeah. So a big focus of, of this whole process that I went through and still to this day, I mean, I'm, I still have the skin issues going on. However, I've had to learn to stop trying to fix the problem and just to be like you just said, like to accept, to surrender and to figure out honestly, like who you really are, no matter what, even if you have a skin issue or a chronic pain issue or whatever the, the physical ailment is, you still have to learn to find joy every day, to enjoy what you're doing on a regular basis, uh, to find like what values are actually meaningful to you and to figure out how to actually embody the true you without uh, whatever your diagnosis is or whatever labels you have. It's a huge issue that I have with today's culture is everybody needs to have a label and it's just, I'm like, ah, no, yeah, <laughs> you, you have to figure out who you are without any labels, without, without any of your bad history, good history, like no matter what happens, you, you have to figure out like your true self. So what was that process like for you and figuring out your true self? What were some of the things that were most helpful? I know you mentioned like finding joy and being in joy. Yeah. So, and this is something I'm still doing as well. Like you said, this is pretty fresh, but, um, there are quite a few brain limbic programs out there. They're like called brain rewiring. Um, DNRS is probably the most famous one. Uh, the Gupta program is the one that I have done a little bit of, and I refer people to as well. Joe Dispenza's work is also kind of on this line. He does a lot of free meditations um, ANS Rewire, uh, Brain Tap is an app that has a lot of these um, brain rewiring meditations. But you can also get this really neat headset that combines light and sound, and it goes over your ears and your eyes, and it helps to uh, bridge the gap between the left and right hemispheres of the brain. It's a little expensive, of course. I bought it, um, but it helps with like that brain rewiring. And, um, there's a more expensive one, 40 years of Zen. Uh, this is one that Dave Asprey, the founder of Bulletproof coffee radio and all that he's been talking about this for years and I've always wanted to do it, but I didn't know at the time it was one of those brain rewiring. So this, they work along the preface of resetting that limbic part of the brain, which is where the hypothalamus is. 
which is starts off that cascade of the HPA access. And this is also uh, techniques that you can use when you're in what's called like the limbic loop. So if you are like in pain all the time, or you know, thinking about something on a loop over and over and over, you can't stop thinking about it, can't stop thinking about it. There's a lot of techniques that you can use to stop <laughs> yourself from doing, having those thoughts over and over again. Uh, there's also a, a technique that I really, really love that combines brain retraining pr um, practices as well as some more of the uh, somatic work. It's called havening. And you can use havening a couple of different ways. I really like doing positive affirmation havening, but you can also do event havening, uh, emotional uh, discharging havening. So like learning how to release emotions from the body with that technique as well. And then some of these somatic work, I uh, have been working with a somatic coach. And so that was really helpful with things like traumatic release exercises. Uh, I have been a, <clears throat> a really big lover of yoga for years, but when I couldn't move, I couldn't even do any yoga. So this is when I would do extremely easy things that people could do from bed, even if they don't have mobilization things like Tai Chi, EFT tapping is another one of my favorites um, that I'm actually certified in. But I feel like havening takes like a, another level from EFT. Like I, I like havening a little bit more. Definitely breath work, grounding, uh, you name it. Most of my day at one point was probably just trying to calm down <laughs> because during the steroid withdrawal, like I said, you, you were at a point where you're shaking because you don't have any cortisol. And so there's, there's no temperature regulation. There's, you're freezing all the time. Your, your teeth are chattering. And I remember when it first started, I was like, how am I going to eat? I have to get into rest and digest, even digest my food. And so this is when I really started to scour YouTube and the internet and figure out every way you could possibly use to try to calm down it, out of a panic attack it, it, to go to sleep, you name it. And there's a lot of really cool techniques out there. Uh, and then lastly, the inner work, I uh, really in the past had a hard time with finding a therapist that I connected with, but the beauty of Instagram is now you can get on Instagram and type in whatever words you want and you could binge watch some of their stuff. So I literally typed in like spiritual psychologists <laughs> and started watching people's people's videos and content. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to contact this person and we connected and started working together. So um, yeah, all in all, it's, I feel like I found like a very well-rounded way to uh, really take on like anything else that happens after this situation. I feel like there's nothing I cannot handle at this point. So one part of your journey was, or a huge part of it was alcohol and drugs. And then you had mentioned at one point in the story that, you know, you had a lot of resistance to giving up alcohol permanently. And so what's that like for you now? And what was the process like of transitioning into sobriety? I was forced to, obviously, when I had hepatitis C there, if I drank, I, I would have become so nauseous and maybe yellow. My liver could have been damaged. So that was a big, like, you have to stop right now. However, I didn't. So once I started to feel a little bit better, 
I still kind of fell into old patterns. Of course, I had all the same friends. They're all doing the same stuff and inviting me to the same things. And I mean, I honestly wasn't ready at that time. I couldn't wait to be able to go out and drink again and go to brunch and go to dinners and parties. And at the time I mentioned, I had started dating the person that I'm with now, and he is extremely introverted and literally does not care to go out. He is perfectly fine sitting at home for months at a time. Like it has no interest in parties and things like that. And at first I was a little bit annoyed, but then I grew to really realize that he was teaching me so much, not just with patience, but also that you literally, it's not needed. Like you do not need alcohol to have friends. You don't need, need alcohol to regulate your emotions. I mean, I was to me, like wanting to drink alcohol was doing everything right throughout the week, going to yoga, going to work, being healthy. And then the second Friday hit, I felt so wound up that that first drink, like finally unwound me. So that was another clue that I had a lot of like nervous system dysregulation. And I wasn't um, in tune with how my body was feeling in the moment. I, I tended to hold everything inside and pile on the work until finally I could use alcohol to dump the bucket out, so to say. Um, and then after the rashes started, there was multiple times where I would have alcohol and just um, not really binge drink and, and think that I could keep it under control and just like, okay, I'm good with a couple of drinks at, at dinner and, and uh, this is no big deal. But I think that that whole wanting to celebrate constantly uh, desire in me was still there. I still didn't think I was totally ready. <laughs> And then of course, finally, you know, when you are at your rock bottom, you look inward, you look uh, to universe or God or whatever your higher power is. And I literally remember being like, okay, okay. I hear you now. <laughs> I get it now. <laughs> Please stop giving me reasons. Like I've, I got the message and um, I'm not one of those people that can that can't be around alcohol. Like I have, I have some white claws in my refrigerator that have been there for, I think two years at this point, it doesn't tempt me whatsoever. The real temptation is always the, the social gatherings and social situations. So it just became easier and easier. I think as I got sicker and sicker, and now I'm to a point where I've, I feel like I've much more embodied that actual person that I always wanted to be like the 13 year old me, the 23 year old me, the person that wanted to be the like person that did yoga and ate healthy and lived by the beach and, and painted and uh, didn't get blackout wasted. I always wanted to be that person. And I feel like I'm at a place where I have finally learned how to be that person. And now the temptation is no longer there. Yeah. I often talk about um, to like really grow, we have to reduce negative stress and add positive stress. And if you're just adding positive stress, it's just more stress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we have to, you gotta, it takes time. And it sounds like that was a process or really both of those were a big component to the success was removing the temptation and even the possibility. Like that's a pretty hard one. But as you mentioned, like if someone else is taking it away from you and you haven't really addressed the root cause, or if there's, or really until you've addressed the root cause, you'll still have that drive. So even when your body said, absolutely not, that impulse to do it, drink was still there. And so I think 
what I'm really hearing you say is the success came once he removed the associations and temptations, which were like social gatherings and older friends, and then started to introduce new ways of being that actually nourished you and brought meaning into your life that alcohol once kind of pseudo met that need. Um, is that correct? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I, I say this with all the love, but my best friends and siblings are my biggest triggers and they know that. And it sounds horrible and I feel bad telling them that, but it, they are, there's no way around it. They were the people that I hung out with the most using the most and, you know, hopefully they're all very supportive and, you know, would never do anything that I didn't feel comfortable doing, but that's, it, it can get really lonely when you have to shed all those people, or even if you're not going to shed them, you still have to distance yourself for enough time so that you feel comfortable and ready to be back in those situations again. Yeah. I'm just, I'm a huge proponent of community and community that has intention and meaning behind it instead of just drinking. Cause I was actually thinking about that when you're telling your story of, wow, imagine what her life would have been like if instead of the bonding thread of this isolated small community was alcohol and drugs, what if it was like painting <laughs> or art and food or ritual and creativity, like something that really feeds the soul. And so it's that intentional community just shapes us in, in so many ways. And I think is really pivotal and helpful in regards to sailing the waters or crossing the waters of a journey like that. Is yeah, definitely. Finding your people. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. We, uh, my friends are amazing and there's definitely a lot of creativity involved. Um, but I, you know, and maybe not everyone feels the same way that I did, but one of the things I did notice when I was stopped drinking is, oh, the other people weren't drink, aren't drinking as much as I would have drank here. So this could just be my experience and alcohol was a way for me to connect because I had a lot of walls up and, um, I always like, especially as a, as a young child felt very awkward in conversation. And so that's one of the things I'm working on now. It's why I started a podcast. That's why I'm excited to be on this podcast is decreasing that, that anxiety towards having conversations with people. Like you'd be surprised how afraid I was at one point, how anxious I would get at one point to have to be around people and speak to them and look at them in the eye <laughs> Um, and just be a, a normal person. Like I, I felt like I didn't know how to do that. Well, and it sounds like your entire upbringing was based on that pseudo connection some connection that had a buffer or some sort of substance to numb out those really vulnerable, tender moments of like, oh my gosh, I feel so awkward. And I don't know how to navigate. Because <laughs> yeah. I think that's a natural part of evolving is, you know, I always say middle school is just a building where they put you when you're awkward. It's like, um, <laughs> we're going to figure out how to do this thing called being a human. <laughs> Um, so we talk a little bit about the social anxiety piece, because that is so rampant, especially now since having a couple years of mega isolation and huge levels of stress and the world is changing so intensively. And so I see that that social isolation is definitely increased in the last couple of years. So can you talk a little bit about that and your journey with that or any helpful advice you want to share? 
Oh yeah. This is so difficult because for one of social media and two, like you said, we're, we're all really isolated now. Um, there really is no, like, there's no replacement for being around people. I mean, we're, we're energetic beings. We feed off each other's energy. Uh, positive social connection helps to regulate our nervous system. So it, it's just so sad that this is something that's going on right now. Um, something that did help me throughout this whole process was having a really amazing supportive uh, Instagram community, <laughs> um, none of whom live here. So if you can't be around people because of you know restrictions and things like that, at least try and find some sort of online community. I think that's really helpful. Uh, the internet, doing things on video, I mean, that's just where we're at in the world today. Uh, some people like pets. You can still co-regulate with pets if you live by yourself or, or you really don't have anyone. Um, but there are so many different really healthy meetups out there these days. Uh, I mentioned I absolutely love yoga. It was devastating to not be able to go to my yoga studio for so long. Uh, you could also find, you know, people that meet up in the park or people that do um, meditation groups. I mean, there's a lot out there. And when it comes to, to feeling like you're socially anxious or socially awkward, uh, feeling like you might need alcohol to connect with somebody, it, you're not alone. Literally, I feel like everyone, everyone feels that way almost. Like even the most outgoing, charismatic people if you talk to them, oftentimes they'll say the same thing, that that, that, that might even be a facade that they put on for other people. <laughs> so it's something we all struggle with and it really, it really just takes practice. So the more you isolate, the worse it could get. And I, I really can't be a like component enough for finding some sort of community that, that's physical. There's people there that you can actually connect with. I think that's a really great piece of advice of finding a community that connects over a shared hobby or activity or interest. Because I find when, you know, in mainstream culture, we meet people at bars mm -hmm. and the primary activity is drinking. But when you're meeting up through a meditation group or a yoga group or a cooking class or a dance class or whatever it is that really sparks joy you're going to get so much more out of those relationships in that time together. Yeah. And when you, when you get rid of that, the whole drinking aspect, you are, you're learning who you really are in those moments too, as opposed to numbing it. So it benefits, it benefits you in so many different ways. I know one of your interests and it's literally the whole, all of the whole soul of your work is manifesting, helping your clients manifest and create the life that they want and deserve. So what's the tie between everything we've been talking about sobriety, social anxiety, um, inner work resistance, all of these things to manifesting. Yeah. So uh, when you think about energy, like attracts like, and you, I am by far not a quantum physicist whatsoever, but it makes sense when you hear someone who maybe is more educated in quantum physics, explain how this works. And when you are, if you think about like an easy example is you go to talk to someone and they're all hunched over, their eyes are puffy, they're not looking at you in the eye and you can tell their quote unquote vibe is off. 
uh, they're giving off a certain type of energy. And you can even feel this if you maybe don't see the, the way that they look. You could you can tell this, this energetic presence from like just being in a room and you know, some people are better at this than others, but feeling the quote unquote vibe, like walking into a party and, and feeling, getting that like gist of how you feel. So when you're manifesting, you are, you're basically trying to figure out, like you're trying to become a person that you want to be. You're trying to figure out who you truly are. What are your values? Um, how do you spend your time? And when it comes to manifesting, you have to learn to embody and become that person. So I mentioned earlier that I had a lot of disconnects. I was wanting to be a therapist. I wanted to learn about health and nutrition and coach people with their lifestyle choices. But here I was not making good lifestyle choices. And when it, when you start to have that disconnect, you're not, you're not fully on board with that person that you know that you can be. So when it comes to manifesting, uh, to attract that person, to become that person, you have to think about like, what does that person do and how do they get here? Like how, how do they make their money? Um, definitely a person who's successful, does yoga, lives by the beach, um, has a lot of free time. I really don't see that, that version of myself getting blackout drunk on the weekends. It just, it doesn't match up. Uh, so when you're manifesting, you are, you're trying to become, which will also attract. So like attracts, like, do you have a certain process or strategy that's particular to your style and helping yourself and your clients get there? Yeah. I really love the havening technique, which is something I mentioned earlier. It combines that brain retraining along with a little bit of somatic practices, uh, and then all sorts of visualization techniques that you can do, uh, journaling, working with someone who can kind of guide you on some of these meditations can be really, really beneficial. Uh, I mentioned Joe Dispenza as well. He's got really great free meditations for some of this as well. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of stuff out there, free stuff too. What are some of the most important things for people to focus on if they want to start practicing this in their life? Manifesting? Well, I like how you always mention like removing the negative stress and, or I mean, not adding more positive stress before you remove some of the negative stress. So uh, boundaries are really helpful for people, jobs, situations, um, and getting extremely clear, like very, very, very detail oriented on what you want and who you want to be. What are, like I said, what are your values? Um, what do you do on a regular basis? You can get as detailed as to like, what kind of car do you drive? Where is your apartment? How much money do you make? <laughs> like, um, what color is your hair? How long is your hair? Who is your partner? Um, the more specific, the better. Are you working on manifesting anything right now? Oh yes, girl. <laughs> so much. So one of the things I used to say all the time was I'm never going to pay off my student loans. There's too much. I owe way too much money and I'm just not going to pay it back. And I really started to shift that in the last couple of years to, I'm going to pay it back and it's going to be easy to pay it back. I am going to be able to afford everything, you know, that I want, that I need. I'm going to be able to afford a house. I'm going to be able to afford a family, to have a career that I love. 
um, a partner that's supportive and uh, we have a good relationship. So all of those things, at one point I had limiting beliefs that told me that I didn't want them, that I didn't deserve them, um, that I wasn't gonna get them. And so redoing some of that brain retraining and, and these are subconscious, like this is not, like I walked around saying, I don't deserve a supportive partner. <laughs> these are all subconscious programmings that you kind of have to unfold and realize that they are driving some of the behaviors you make you know, drinking is very much so self-sabotage. So if we're drinking, then we're not actually reaching our fullest potential. So that gives us an excuse as to why maybe we don't have the house, the good job, the partner, because it, because we don't, we can't have it because, you know, we have drinking in the way, but we're still not ready to give that up. So once you kind of let go of whatever those negative thought patterns are, subconscious programming, and then you realize that it is truly possible to have anything that you want in life and, and you have the power to attract it. So one thing you just said is, or was referring to how subconscious patternings can drive who we are. And you were speaking primarily into the experience of growing and stepping into that next level you, but to tie it all together, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts beliefs, experiences on that subconscious belief patterns and chronic illness? Oh yeah, this is a deep one. <laughs> oh, this, I mean, subconscious beliefs could go back to just, I don't deserve love. Um, I don't deserve to be healthy. I can't be healthy. I don't know how to take care of myself. I don't deserve to learn how to take care of myself. I am the victim of A, B, and C, and that gives me an out to take responsibility for certain things. And like I said, these are, these are not things that you're actually thinking on a regular basis. Uh, but when you look deep into some of the like behavioral patterns with a lot of chronic illness, you kind of start to see these, um, these belief patterns that are, that are really holding people back. And I mentioned diagnoses earlier and people being very attached to a diagnosis or a label because that validates you. I mean, that, that validates that you are truly having suffering, which no one is ever saying that that is not true. Um, but once you have that validation, uh, you kind of have to peel back the layers and figure out like how is getting that validation gonna gonna keep you motivated to stay sick. So sometimes I tell people stop chasing a diagnosis. Like you don't need to spend all this money on testing to get a diagnosis because once you have that, that might bring you bring you peace. That it's that you know maybe it's not quote unquote in your head, but a little bit is kind of in your head. And I say that with so much love <laughs> because the physical symptoms are real. But the, the thought patterns, the belief systems, those kinds of things can be worked on. And once you start to work on those and stop chasing, like running after trying to fix something or trying to have proof um, that you are sick or you are in suffering, then you start to actually be able to experience joy and be able to be like in your true self in your moment. 
And then those, those physical symptoms, they start to fall off. So when we're, you know, you've probably heard neurons that uh, fire together, wire together. If we assign ourselves this diagnosis, like I have eczema, I have Hashimoto's, I have Lyme, I have mold. Uh, we're literally telling our brain that this is what we're doing now. So I have this, I have these symptoms. These symptoms prove that I have this and your brain is like, well, this is what we're doing. So it continues to run those patterns over and over again. When you learn those, those brain retraining techniques and you stop those patterns and you become aware of those looping patterns and you can start to uh, rewire them away from having those types of symptoms or being connected with that diagnosis. Uh, and then that's when you can start to create and build you know, the life that you actually want. Yeah, that is definitely a deep and juicy topic. And I think one that could feel controversial until you get a glimpse yeah. into your own experience of what you were just commenting on. And that stored emotions, subconscious belief patterns, all these things that loop out constantly every single day without our conscious awareness has a huge influence in how we think and feel and believe something we have like 70 to 90,000 thoughts a day. And 90% of those are repeated. It's just <laughs> mega. <laughs> yeah. You ask yourself, okay, if I were to sit down and say, I am healthy 90,000 times a day, you can't imagine that that's not going to affect you in any way, shape or form. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can literally just sit here and just say, I am cold. 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 I'm cold. Oh my gosh. I'm so cold. I'm cold. Oh, I'm cold. <laughs> Eventually some part of you is going to start feeling cold. <laughs> and the same goes, I remember actually um, surfing in Nova Scotia, long story short, that doesn't need to be told in this moment. I couldn't get access to a wetsuit and it was, the water was cold. Cold. I mean, 54 degrees, something like that. And my whole body was just shaking uncontrollably. My lips are purple. And the whole time I just kept going, whoo, I'm so hot. Like it is so hot out here. Whoo. And that, that's all. I just kept writing that mantra of just how hot I was to manage the cold. And it helped. I stayed in the water for like 30 minutes. <laughs> wow. That's impressive. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was, I was shaking a lot when I got out of the water, <laughs> but I had a great time. <laughs> Yeah. That's a perfect example. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think also how fun and joy can help you move through that, those layers of discomfort. I kind of have a, a similar recent story when I was at the dentist, you know, it's, it's never pleasurable. And I just sat there with my mouth open, telling myself that I was safe and I was having a blast and my tooth was going to be fixed after and everything was going to be okay. <laughs> and I just kept running those over and over and over. Did it work? Yeah, of course. Great. I mean, it wasn't, <laughs> it, 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 there wasn't no pain, but you know, if I was just, oh my gosh, I have to get out of here. This is the worst. It's going to be worse always. I think that's really connected to the concept of duality or non-duality. Um, depends on how you want to phrase it, but in recognizing that more than one thing can be true at the same time. So you can be in pain and still have fun. Yes. You can be, you can be sick and sick and still feel strong. You can be angry and still exhibit patience. Like all these things can coexist. And so one thing that I see with people and myself, I say, not, <laughs> not just looking at other people, but something that I struggled with when I was starting to practice this stuff is, but it's not true <laughs> because here's <laughs> the proof. 
I don't actually want to be here. My jaw is tired and I don't love having other people's hands in my mouth. You know, I would have that dialogue and I was just so quick to be like, but here's the proof. And Mm -hmm. I think we just have to be willing to let more than one thing exist at the same time. And then eventually one becomes stronger, whichever one is, whichever is repeated the most. Oh yeah. Yeah. I love that you pointed this out. It's so funny. I was just working on a post about this, (laughs) that you can be sick and still be happy. Like you can, you can have a, a chronic illness or a condition or something really bad could have happened to you, but you can still be happy. You can still have fun. You can still be the person that you want to be. You don't have to wait until it's over. So important. I oftentimes like to ask, is there any kind of like last piece of advice or your favorite quote, a poem, a favorite story or memory, anything you want to share to kind of wrap it up for today? I think of my favorite quote is everything in moderation, especially moderation. So there's a time and a place to get really strict on things and like really really get it, get in on it. But there's also a time and a place to just completely let go. And like, whatever happens, happens, eat, whatever you want, um, go on that vacation. You know, you don't have to be so strict with yourself all the time. Um, and piece of advice, <clears throat> I would say, I also really like the quote, what you, what you resist will persist because that's kind of like sums up my story a little bit in a nutshell, (laughs) whatever, whatever you think is not the thing that you need to do. Sometimes it's exactly the thing you need to do. Also. Yeah. I love the moderation quote. (laughs) (laughs) Oftentimes when people go off on adventure, I say, be safe, but not too safe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And moderation, but not too much moderation. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Amanda, this has been so great having you on the show. I know your journey is long and has so many layers to it. And you've learned a lot along the way on all the layers, the body, the mind, the emotions, the spirit. And it's just so wonderful to see how you're able to bridge the gap and take the two sides of your experience, the sickness and the creation and walk your clients through that process. It's really important. So thanks for being on the show. And thanks also for doing what you do. Um, If people wanted to find you, where would they go to do that? Yeah, my website is thehealerrevolution.com. And then my Instagram is handle Amanda Panacea. And I also have the Instagram at the underscore healer underscore revolution. Amazing. Yay. Well, thank you, Amanda, for being on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Wasn't that amazing? If you want to stay up to date on more incredible offerings, be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast and find me on Instagram and LinkedIn to join the community of people who are obsessed with reaching their fullest potential. As always, may you walk with grace and courage, and we'll see you next time.